Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because I have a very special guest to interview. Longtime astrologer to the stars, and I mean that literally, to the Hollywood stars, Mr. Jacob Shapiro. Jacob was a very popular astrologer in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s for some of Hollywood's brightest stars as well as their agents and studio bigwigs. His star-studded client list included the likes of Paul Lynn, Charles Nelson Reilly, and Bob Crane from Hogan's Heroes. Mr. Shapiro also provided astro guidance to some of our biggest rock stars, including Elvis Presley and Bob Dylan, and several well-known politicians, most notably former California Governor Jerry Brown and the former First Lady Nancy Reagan. But to Lost in Space fans, his two most interesting clients were none other than Erwin Allen and Jonathan Harris. Jacob's newest career is that of an author. He recounts those incredible years as a leading astrologer to Tinseltown in his new tell-all book, Jacob Shapiro, Guru to Hollywood's Golden Age of Stars, which is coming out very soon. So sit back and enjoy this fascinating interview with Mr. Jacob Shapiro. Jacob Shapiro, thank you very much for sending us an advanced copy of your book and agreeing to join us on Alpha Control. Well, uh, thank you. I, uh, if I could make one minor correction, it is Dr. Jacob or, or Dr. Jake, as my clients uh, refer to me. Oh, mind. oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize astrology offered doctorates. I just learned something. Well, actually, my doctorate is in chiropractic science. My, mm. my mother really wanted a, a son who was a, a medical doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I didn't even know chiropractors were medical doctors. Oh, well, well, technically we aren't, but um, just don't tell my mother that, okay? <laughs> mm. we, we do have extensive training in chiropractic care and are licensed practitioners, though. Oh, okay. Well, thanks again for joining us, Dr. Jake. Oh, certainly, Lane. And that's a a very unusual name. Um, Is that a family name by chance or what? Well, sort of. It's actually my father's name spelled backwards. Your your father's name was 
Enal? No, no, no. Neil. My name's spelled L-A-E-N, although it's pronounced just like the regular L-A-N-E spelling. Oh, oh, okay. Yes, yes. Well, that, that, that's very fascinating. I bet your father was a, uh, a Leo. They could be very enigmatic. Uh, was he born between uh, July 23rd and August 22nd by chance? Uh, no. Actually, he was born on Halloween. Oh. Oh, well, that actually, that was my second guess, a Scorpio. Mm. Their passion and power often confuse people into thinking of them as a fire sign, but they are actually a water sign. They derive their strength from the psychic emotional realm. They could be extremely clairvoyant and intuitive. I'm a Scorpio, for example. Oh, okay. Well, that is interesting. Um, I want to alert the listeners up front that they don't want to miss the ending of this show, whatever they do, because we have a very special gift for every single one of them, a free gift, even to our overseas listeners. So whatever you do, folks, be sure to check out the ending of this podcast. But please don't feel the need to skim ahead right now because there's plenty for everyone and we're not going to run out. In fact, you might want to tell your friends to hear this interview as well so they can get in on it too. And Dr. Jake, let me thank you in advance for your generous gift to our listeners. It's your generosity that made this gift possible. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Thank you. Well, now, about your book, uh, you have some very famous names here, even besides the two Lost in Space biggies. Those two alone are worth the price of admission. But this is like a who's who of famous oddball actors and eccentric celebrities. Well, well what's oddball about them? I, I don't understand. I... Maybe that was a poor choice of words. Uh, I meant they played more oddball characters, not that they were oddball. I mean, Charles Nelson Reilly and Paul Lynn were two very flamboyant comedy characters, both very funny, and I loved Paul Lynn's sarcasm. Were they like that in real life? What, flamboyant? Well, isn't that obvious? I, I would think. Yes. No, no, I meant funny and sarcastic. Did they joke around a lot when they saw you? Oh, oh, no, no, not at all. Uh, astrology is no joking matter. It's a very serious science. Most people don't appreciate how complicated and sophisticated it is. Uh, scientists tend to disparage it because they don't understand it. But the truth is that once properly categorized and standardized, it will become less mystical and more of an accepted science. Paul and Nelson, they both recognize this. All my clients did. Otherwise, I wouldn't see them. Now, according to your book, you began seeing the cream of the Hollywood crop almost by accident. Tell us about that. Oh, oh yes. I, I didn't originally set out to cater to the celebrity crowd, but uh, when the word got out that I was also a doctor and a certified chiropractor, I think that that convinced a lot of people that you know, I was a real deal. There were so many charlatans, and there still are in the business, and I, I won't mention any names like uh, John Green or Sally Williams. Hollywood hangers-on, they will bleed their clients dry and then run to the paparazzi and tell the story about, you know, whatever it is for financial gain. Oh, look at me. I can predict when Marlon Brando will die. Or I, I know when the Hollywood's leading men who are really closeted homosexuals, at least with me, they know they are getting a real professional. And I think that that is what led them to me. You know what they say about building the better mousetrap, and that's kind of what we had there. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. This is a tell-all book, and some of the stories you tell seem rather personal. Were you worried or are you worried that any of your former clients will feel betrayed? I mean, at least the ones that are still alive. You know, today's litigious society, especially in Hollywood, that's got to have crossed your mind. 
Well, yes, yes, it it did, uh, of course, and and my publisher as well. But you know, you did notice that most of them are deceased. But I I actually wrote the surviving ones' letters uh, to see if any of them had problems with us discussing their cases in public. You know, the, this is thirty, forty, fifty years after the fact, and none of them wrote back and said no. And for the record, there is no legal doctor-patient privilege in astrology, like uh, there is in psychiatry or other medical analysis. So it would be rather difficult for them to sue me this late in the game, especially. Well, I guess that makes sense. Now, I can't wait to ask you about some of your clients. The stories you tell in your books are true gold, but our listeners have a very special interest in two of your clients, Erwin Allen and Jonathan Harris. How did you wind up with them as clients and what was that like for you? Well, uh, actually, it was very interesting. Irwin was a, a very big producer for the networks. I, I had no idea how big he really was when he first came to me, but but he dealt with a great deal of stress in his job, as you might well imagine, and he suffered from recurring migraines, especially when dealing with certain actors who drove him, well, who were very difficult. And and he heard that I was – did I mention I was a certified chiropractic doctor? Did I tell you that already? Uh, yes. Yes, you did. Well, well, uh, what I did not mention, I'm sure, is that chiropractists not only we, – we not only are experts in diagnosis and treatment of mechanical disorders of the muscular skeleton system, especially the spine, but we also specialize – and and can treat stress, tension, headaches, including migraines. And Erwin was a very, uh, f- how would you say, frugal person. He was always uh, spending vast sums of money, not really his, but backers' money, which he was nonetheless responsible for on various TV projects and losing all that money, or, or so it seemed to him at the time. In fact, it, it, he, he said that going to work was like watching a fireman pee millions of dollars down a pee hole. You know, can, can I say that? Pee hole? Is that? Yeah, uh, sure. No problem. Well, well, he actually said hole, but I'm paraphrasing. The point is, is that the way Hollywood would waste his money drove him nuts, and he wasn't used to that. He he came out of radio. Uh, I don't know if you realize that or not, but he was actually a radio person. Oh uh, yeah, actually, I heard that uh, back in the early days. I think that's right. And radio was so much cheaper. And then, uh, then he makes a move to movies. And even then, it was pretty cheap for him. He did a movie, a, a documentary about life under the sea, and it was it was all recycled underwater footage shot by other people, and he just strung it together into this documentary of sorts, and he actually won an Oscar for it. I bet you didn't know that. He won an Oscar for a documentary. I did know that. I think it was called... Uh... The sea around us, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yes, yes, that's quite good. Uh, knowing that, I mean that—that's from way back in the 1950s, I think. Anyway, Irwin received all these accolades and awards for a movie that cost him next to nothing to produce. So he thought, you know, what the heck, conquering Hollywood is going to be like taking candy from a baby. But that was when he was, you know, directing sea urchins and starfish and damselfish. But 
when it was actual humans, or as I say in the book, spoiled urchins, Hollywood damsels and real stars, that was another matter. He, he suddenly had to pay a scriptwriter, a, a casting agent, all the, all the behind-the-scenes staff and the grabalicious actors themselves who all thought they needed to live in Beverly Hills and their agents who were always driving the cost up, plus the mm. various Hollywood unions. and Oh, it was terrible. It, it, they were all wanting their cut. And then the Hollywood accountants, they could take a 25-cent candy bar and break it down into something more like a $200 energy rep- Replenishment expense. I mean, the guys were masters at stealing his money, Irwin's money, according to him. I mean, this is Irwin's point of view. I, I don't mean to disparage any of these people. I mean, I'm sure unions and everyone else needs to make money like the rest of us. I'm just telling you what, for Irwin, it drove him crazy. And the thought that he could come to me and unburden himself of these heavy problems and not only get some guidance from the stars, but also some guidance for the stars, like I say in my book. Well, that was um, well. It was tremendously comforting to him, and when he realized I could also help treat his migraines at no additional cost, or, or certainly not a noticeable additional cost, that sold him right there. It was uh, he became one of my most uh, loyal clients, actually. Well, I guess you were able to help him with his headaches then. Oh yes, oh yes. He was very thankful, as you could well imagine. I, honestly, I, I think just letting him rant and rave about the people he had to deal with was the best therapy anyone could provide, but I did detect some blockage of his ski and uh, what what with his uneven pactelial tracking and resulting spinal uh, sacroiliac joint misalignments. This mm. is all very medical stuff. I wouldn't expect you to understand, but the, the bottom line was that I had kind of a trifecta treatment, if you will. You know, I not only did the, 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 the back alignment, but also the astrological science and in essence, listened to his problems. So, uh, you know, in his book, this this yield dramatic results at, at a fraction of the cost, and I think he appreciated it a lot. <laughs> well, no wonder he kept coming back to you. You must have been a real godsend to him. Oh, I, I think so. It was a, it was a it was a two way street, and he was a very interesting fellow. He appreciated my vast knowledge, not only of astrology but astronomy as well. Well, he had just started this new series. It was about the first family in space, the Space Family Robinson, you know, not the Swiss Family Robinson. It was a twist on that, though, a rather clever substitution there. And he was so proud of it back then because it was the first real science fiction show dealing with space on TV. It it beat Star Trek by a full year. And he hired all these top-notch writers to produce top-shelf scripts for him. But they didn't know diddly squat about science. They knew fiction, but not science fiction. Uh, this is Irwin talking here, of course. He said that every time an episode play, he would get two kinds of complaints from the networks. One batch would be the complaints from the, the, the mothers about it scaring the kids, and the other would be the batch from the men, who were usually engineers or astronomers, uh, complaining about how wrong the science was. And he said they would get the most obvious things wrong, but he was in no position to catch the mistakes because he was completely swamped at work. He had another program, uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Ocean or something, that was on another network at the same year. Did you know that? 
Uh, yes, uh, we we often talk about that. Uh, well, yeah, well, he was a very, very busy man, as you could well imagine. He had even had others that followed in that wake, if you will. But whenever that ocean one would air, then he'd get another batch of complaints. The mothers would complain about it being too scary for the kids, as usual. And the men, usually sailors and oceanographers, would complain about the information on the ocean, that that, that was all wrong. It drove him bonkers, uh, but he didn't have time to spend on that kind of detail. Did you know that? Yes, yeah, yeah that's yes, right. Yes. Oh, you did read the book. That's good. Sometimes people don't, but they just try to fake it. Erwin was a very he was a very proud man of his multiple programs and making money hand over fist there for a while, but that was eventually because for a long time his backers had to subsidize all this the expense because the networks were just as tight-fisted as Erwin was and they were always reducing the budget while the actors and the staff and the unions required more and more money every year. It, it was a nightmare of juggling and, and robbing Peter to pay Paul, but he, he did do it. And and like no other producer that I'm aware of, but you know, I'm no expert, I, I don't know how he managed to scrounge up the money for from this or that, but he still did. You could tell that you know it was still, I think the scripts are what bothered him the most because he felt like the, the writers were just taking advantage of him. They didn't know anything about the stars or the planets or anything about the universe, according to Earth. Yeah, we have noticed a few, how should I say it, uh, a few scientific inaccuracies in the show, but we usually find them entertaining in their own way. It kind of grows on you after a while. Well, I can tell you that uh, Erwin did not find it amusing. And um, the only thing that grew on him was his temper and that pile of hair on his head. He he was going bald, so he would cover it over that, you know, as it grew longer and longer. He was a very funny man, not only to look at, but to listen to. He had, but he had no sense of humor. But in his position, I could see why. I remember once he said to me, he said, um, uh, Dr. Jake, I want to tell you everything I really do, uh, but I can't afford to. It's too expensive. Hmm. And, and, I, and I said, Erwin, you're such a good client. You've lined me up with so many other good clients, and it's the end of the day. So I'm just going to write down the current time, and we're going to end today's session. And you can continue on as long as you like. You know, Just remember, we, we both got to eat dinner sometime. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. Every time I'm here, I'm not making money. By reading new treatments or working at the studio, and, and, and I'm not stopping those bastards from wasting my money behind my back. So every hour I sit here costs me at least $1,000, and that doesn't include your fee. And he meant that. Can you imagine what that must feel like to have time that's that costly? You can't ever relax? I mean, how does a man ever relax like that? I don't understand. Wow. No wonder he had migraines. That would make it difficult to relax or unwind, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. Very difficult. But uh, fortunately, I you know, I could lay hands on with my, uh, my experience in the realigning the spine and everything. But he he actually saved time and money, you know, coming to me because he didn't have to go anywhere else for these sorts of things. And I think he really appreciated that a lot as well. So, I mean, he was getting more than just astrological guidance. So, you know, he was getting kind of a therapy and physical therapy, mental and physical therapy. It was a good deal for him. Well, it sounds like a pretty good deal, really. I mean, you get two for the price of one. Well, not quite. I mean, I, I, I would double charge, you know, when I was doing more than one 
service. But uh, yeah, I shouldn't mention that on the air because although I was fully certified, I wasn't practicing chiropractic services officially at the time. That's not how I was advertising that that anyway. But I, I'm assuming that by now the statute of limitations has passed for that bureaucratic faux pas, if you will. <laughs> you didn't mention that concern in the book, but our audience is rather discreet, so we should be fine here. We'll just call it our little secret. But how did you become Irwin's unofficial scientific advisor of sorts? Not just for Lost in Space, but you started giving him ideas for his other shows. Oh, yes. Well, um, Lost in Space was all about space, you know, and that's the, the canvas that astrologers are most familiar with. After I got uh, Irwin to relax a little bit and, and stop counting the seconds he was talking to me, which at what point he, he actually mentioned it cost him 27.7 cents per second to be there, you know, $16.60. Six cents a minute. I, the man had a mind for, for numbers. It's amazing. But once I got him to stop watching the clock, which, by the way, that's a kind of interesting story. I, I, I went to Vegas at one point, and I noticed there were no clocks. And I asked the dealer, where are the clocks? And the dealer said, they're not allowed to have them because when they do, people leave earlier when they see the clock. And I thought to myself, hey, you know, I, I could remove the clock from my office. And sure enough, I did that. And the next time Irwin came in, he said, wait a minute, where are the clocks? And I said, well, Irwin, I, that's not important. The clock's not important. You are important. Tell me what your biggest issue is, and we will work on solving it. And he liked that. He was, he was important. He knew he was important, but no one ever came right out and told him he was important. No one ever said, Irwin, you are important. And when I did that, he stopped paying attention to the clock, and it helped him unwind. And um, what were we talking about again? I, I can't remember. Uh, you were telling us about your idea contributions to the show? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I've, I, you know, I've forgotten a lot of them that I gave him through the years. That's one of the reasons I, I did the book, to put it down in writing so I, you know, I, I could remember it forever. But, but Irwin had just started this series, and he was always looking for different angles. And at one point, he was complaining about how he had to put up with everyone with their giant egos when, when he was the only one there that couldn't be replaced. Really, I mean, when you think about it, he should have had the biggest ego himself, but he had to hide it because of all the other stars who were jealous about him and each other. They always had to stroke each other's egos rather than the other way around. He had to stroke theirs. They didn't stroke his. And I remember one day he looked at me and he said, you know, sometimes when I look through that lens and they're setting up the shot and I'm double-checking how it looks because I can't trust even the directors to do it right. But I'm looking through that lens, and the people, they look so small through that eyepiece. But I hear them with all their big complaints about the stupidest things, like how their costumes feel or how hot it is under the lights. We made their costumes out of fire, uh, fighters material. It was very well insulated. You would think if it was hot under the lights and that stuff, it would be excruciatingly hot in other garments, but they, they'd still complain. It's their national pastime, that I'm, and I'm paying for it. This again, this is Erwin talking, you know. And he says, sometimes I just want to reach through that lens and grab that tiny person and squish them like an ant. And when I heard him say that, it actually gave me an idea, and I just blurted it out. I said, Erwin, Erwin, you can do that with your lens. And he said, 
I can? How's that? And I said, it's a sci-fi show. You could do anything you want. You can you could do a special show where you make the characters really, really big or really, really small. Or you could do both. And he said, you mean like, like giants and little people? And I said, exactly. Just like, what's it called? Gulliver's Travels in Space. Because I knew that was what he liked to do. He liked to take famous stories like Swiss Family Robinson and, you know, put the space in it. And he said, yeah, yeah, I, I could do that. And, and that might work. And sure enough, a few weeks later, I'm watching Lost in Space. And out comes this story where the Dr. Smith character grows up into this big giant. And all the rest of the cast are these tiny little people. And it worked wonderful. I thought it was a delightful show. Did you see that one? The the Oasis? Yes, yes, the Oasis. I think that's what it was called. That was a it was pretty early on in the season, a black and white episode if I remember correctly. It you know, Lost in Space used to be black and white. It went color later on. That was another one of his complaints. It cost a lot more. But uh, you know, he did that also with another series that came, it was called Land of the Giants. You know, now I never got any screen credit for giving him those ideas. And I, I never said anything to him because he was paying me on a regular basis as a client. It was kind of neat to set the record straight with this book, you know, which is another reason I decided to write it. You know, that and, of course, you know, the royalties. <laughs> well, that's really something. You were the original inspiration for the Oasis and also Land of the Giants? You know, there were other ideas that we discussed that wound up on the show, too, but uh, some of them were very specific and others were rather uh, conceptual. Many I can't even remember. I, uh, we would talk for hours. The irony is he thought he was picking my brains for astrological answers, but in reality, he was picking my brains for story ideas. He had story editors who were supposed to do that for him for money on a salary, they were professional writers, and they still couldn't do it. But I think he preferred doing it with me because it made him feel like it was his idea instead of some stupid writer. And because I was a doctor and you know very well-versed in the stars, he knew that I knew what I was talking about. So it was a fun experience, actually, I have to say. That's a great story. And it really rewrites a lot of where some of these ideas come from. Do you remember any others? In the book, you mentioned The Wishing Machine. Oh, yes. Uh, that was another um, complaint he was making about how he wished he could do this or that, but the networks wouldn't let him do this or that. They were always making him dumb it all down. He he hated it, but he had to because he thought he would otherwise lose the show. And I would say, Erwin, you can. And again, he was like, what? I can what? And I said, you can wish anything you want and you can make it happen. And he said, I can? How? And I said, sure, it's a sci-fi show. You can make a wishing machine that makes wishes come true. And he said, now, wow, well, maybe I can. I can make a scientific device, a machine that makes wishes come true. Why not? If they believe Mr. Neverbody, they'll believe anything. I didn't quite understand what he was talking about, but it worked out. He ended up using that idea as well. You mean Mr. Nobody? Because that was another episode in Lost in Space. It was a, a space god of sorts. That's, uh, well, I, I could have sworn it was Neverbody, but, you know, Neverbody, Nobody. I, it was something like that. But uh, uh, 
Maybe he did. You know, he did have a lot on his plate, like you say, and he was always changing the titles. But that sounds like the episode you're talking about. Well, at any rate, sure enough, along comes another episode about a wishing machine. And this one, it actually had a monster in it, which was pretty interesting, too. And it was just fascinating to see these things. You know, it'd come out my mouth one week and then it'd be on television a few weeks later. It was it was interesting. Yeah. That one, I think, was called Wish Upon a Star, but uh, that wasn't the only one. You also mentioned in the book something about dogs? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. He had this chimp on the show that cost him an arm and a leg, and this animal, it was, it was scaring the cast. And he was afraid that it was going to bite someone or go bananas on the set. Those animals, they're, they're actually very strong and can do a lot of damage. Anyway, he was complaining that he wished he had you know, an ordinary dog instead of a chimp, that he had, he had just brought the dog into space as a side kick instead of the chimp but you know the chimpanzee it had this hit piece it was always taking it off at the worst top possible times it would ruin the scenes or he would rub and scratch his butt and they'd have to stop and shoot everything all <laughs> over again Irwin actually thought the chimp did this on purpose just so he would start shouting at everyone again but i said Irwin, if you want a dog in space instead of a chimp in space why not have the russians deliver it for you and he said the Russians deliver a dog? How, what are you talking about? And I said, sure. That's what they send into space, dogs. That's what the Russians said. But they, they killed it, you know, once they no longer have a use for it. But you can have them send a dog into space that they don't kill, and he could be your dog on your show. And he said, yeah, yeah, that, that could work. But how do I get rid of the chimp? And, and I said, do the same thing that the Russians do. Just kill it off. And he said, oh, no, no, no. CBS would never let me do that. I can't even kill the guest stars. They'll never let me kill the chimp. Although, I believe me, I wanted to many times. Again, mm. this, is, this is Erwin talking. And I say, but Erwin, it's a sci-fi show. You can have the, the chimp just disappear. Nobody will, will remember. Just have some monster or a machine or a special effect to distract them, and no one will even care about the missing chimp. And sure enough, soon out comes another episode, and it's got a dog in space. Uh, there he was, and uh, sure enough, there was no chimp, and no one even noticed. But the weird thing was, like the next episode, the chimp was back, and the dog disappeared. So, you know, I don't know. how, he, But it, I think he, he understood what I was getting at, because, you know, people are very forgiving on these things, and I know I was. Yeah. I, I, I think actually what it was is that the chimp had a contract because I asked him about that and he said that he was locked into paying for the chimp so he he brought him back that's what was going on there oh boy you've got some other fun stories like this in your book but how did Jonathan Harris wind up as one of your clients that was actually by accident he didn't really seek any astrological advice at least not at first but when he heard Irwin talk about getting his back cracked and also dealing with his headaches while also doing all these other things at one fee. He thought it was a good deal. So, you know, Jonathan has a very touchy back. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but he he actually needed a, a regular chiropractor. So uh, I was glad he came to me. Yes, I've heard that. And so did his Dr. Smith character. But apparently you helped Harris with his back in real life. 
Oh, yes, yes. It was a, a basic realignment, nothing that difficult. I think he just sort of liked having his back adjusted, honestly, and blowing off steam about the other cast and characters. And, of course, Erwin. Mm. They, they had this uh, tremendously, well, I think you'd call it an ongoing rivalry, the two of them. It was somewhat disconcerting because when they saw each other in my presence, they were like the best of buddies. Uh, Harris would compliment Erwin as a master craftsman, and Erwin would fawn over Harris's acting abilities. And all the time, it was awkward for me because I knew what they were saying about each other behind each other's back. And, mm. and, and I knew that they knew what they were saying about each other behind their back. And they knew that I knew, but they didn't know that the other person was saying the same sorts of thing about them behind their back. So it was very interesting, I can tell you that. Oh, wow. Can you share some of those examples with our listeners like you do in the book? Oh, well, you know, I, I wouldn't want to completely tell all of my tell-all book, but suffice it to say that Erwin was irked about how Harris was always wanting more money and being more difficult about the silliest of things. He didn't want to wear his costume. He wanted to change it. He didn't want to cover his face or his body in any sort of container. He had the craziest uh, demands. But he was the star of the show, which he wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to be that, that Zorro character. Uh, he was supposed to be the star. His name escapes me right now. but Yeah, Guy Williams. I think yes, you mean Guy it. Williams. Yeah. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Williams. Uh, he was supposed to be the big star, but Harris kept stealing all the scenes, and before Irwin knew it, Harris was the main star, and he started making these demands. Meanwhile, Irwin was driving Harris crazy because he refused to move Harris up in the credits. He was the last person listed in the credits because his character was, was added at the very end of when they were playing in the show, and he wasn't even supposed to last that long. He was supposed to be killed off or something. But as Harris' star status continued to rise, Mr. Harris felt, and justifiably in my opinion, he felt that he should be moved up in the credits. Uh, but they listed him as a, a special guest star or something, mm. some other sort of nonsense. Well, obviously that would have created all sorts of trouble with the other cast members that he was displacing, especially Mr. Williams. And Irwin was busy putting out all these other fires as it was. So the way Harris kept nagging him about the credits really got under Irwin's skin. But eventually, I realized it was all just a, a negotiation tactic. Harris didn't really care about the credit order. He just brought it up every time he wanted something else from Irwin. And that basically forced Irwin to give him whatever else he was demanding because he knew he wasn't going to change the credit list. So I, I think Harris milked that cow for three entire seasons, which is amazing. He he really was like his Dr. Smith character that way. He knew, he knew all the strings to pull, and he played Irwin like a violin. Mm. Oh, I, I saw what was happening, of course, but I, I couldn't just, you know, tattle on Harris to Irwin because Harris was also my client, and I didn't want to get him in trouble either. Besides, uh, the more he drove Irwin crazy, the more Irwin would come back to me to complain about it. So, it, you know, it was kind of a two-way street. Everybody was helping everyone else in one way or another. Uh, it was kind of like a marriage where the the husband thinks they are in charge, but really it's the wife calling all the shots and everybody knows it except for the husband. It was kind of one of those deals. That's golden. You know, it sounds like you 
were more of a psychiatrist, maybe you should have gotten a degree in that too. <laughs> You're not the first person to tell me that. But being an astrologer, a good astrologer, requires a lot of the same skills as a psychiatrist. You need to know how to read people and find out what, what makes them tick to, to realize what it is they really want so that you can give it to them. The, the stars only reveal so much, even about the stars, the Hollywood stars that we already know a lot about in the papers and whatnot. But if you really want to know what's bothering them and, and what torments them and how to address it, you need to not only hear what they are telling you, but also sense what it is and know what it is that they're not telling you. I mean, sometimes you, you would call that a placebo effect uh, in my profession. You just, you say something because you know this, what they need to hear. Ah, uh, that's some amazing stuff, Dr. Jake. And your book has so many other great stories in it. But you indicated to me earlier that you didn't want to reveal everything on the air before the book is published. So we'll save some of those treasures for future readers. Yes, I, I just wanted to talk about the Lost in Space primarily on your podcast when I heard about it. I thought that would be appropriate. Yeah. Well, I do have to say that the Bob Crane chapter, now that was an amazing story. But Oh, yes, that was a great story. I mean, I feel terrible about what happened to him, of course, but uh, he was a very interesting character, I could tell you that, because he told me about a lot of this stuff as it was happening in real time. He did feel it was a relationship in which he could open up about that. He was proud about it, but he just didn't want anyone to go to the papers about it, you see. So, yeah, uh, I can understand that, but especially back in those days. But you can understand that, do you? Well, I've read that many of these Hollywood stars were uh, living a double life. Oh, I thought you were referring to yourself. And okay, I understand. Speaking of that, Dr. Jake, now is a perfect time for us to reveal a special gift made possible by you. You have generously offered to give away free copies of your book to all our Alpha Control listeners, all our current listeners. And this is an exclusive offered only here, folks, but it's a limited time pre-publication offer. It expires when the book is released on September 11th, 2020. And this is a very kind offer, Dr. Jake, and I know our listeners will appreciate it. Well, I have been accused of being too generous many times before, but perhaps that's why I'm not as famous as I would otherwise be. Money talks, you know, here in Hollywood, but I'm not as uh, that good of a businessman. I typically give away way too much. At least that's what everyone tells me, except for my wife. She doesn't, uh, my ex-wife, she doesn't say that. How do you want to go about distributing your gift? Should the listeners write in to you or email? How do they oh, contact oh, you? Oh, it's very simple, actually. You just tell everyone who wants their free copy of my book to send their name, their address, and a check or money order for nineteen ninety five to me at the... Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This is a free copy, right? Whoa, oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. Well, could you repeat that line? It came out wrong. I, I can edit that earlier flub. Oh, 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 sure. Yes. To get your free copy, I just need your name, your address, and 1995, a check or money order. Sent whoa, to whoa. Me. Uh, Dr. Jake, hold on a second. I don't mean to interrupt. I can edit this out later, but you keep telling them to send you money for their free copy. Can we get a take where you're just asking for their name and address, and if I have to edit out the money mention in post-production, it might sound a little weird or awkward? Oh, n n no, you, you don't want to edit out the money thing. I, I can't send it without the money. But you just said it was free. Well, I still need them to pay postage and handling. I, I'm, I'm not made of money, you know. 
I guess that sort of makes sense, but $20 is way more than it costs to send a book. Can't you send it book rate for three or four instead of Priority Mail, Express, or whatever you were intending? I, I didn't say $20. I said nineteen ninety-five. But But sure, I can reward it if you insist. Uh, I could say uh, it's, it's absolutely free except for postage and handling. Uh, so the author won't die of a heart attack calling them to the post office. Would that make you happier? Well, look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to sound ungrateful. It's just that you said absolutely free, and then you said $20. It kind of sounds contradictory. Maybe you can reword it a little bit. Okay. Uh, well, uh, one more time, then here goes. Um, for your free copy of my book, please send your name, address, and a $20 check or money order for postage and handling to me, Dr. Jake, care of... April Fool's Day Prank, oh, What a Goose I Am Drive, uh, Beverly Hillbillies, California Cater, and the zip code is 54321 Liftoff. Uh, please write clearly in block print, no cursive. I, I can't stand cursive. It's a childhood paranoia of mine, a, a phobia, if you will. And, and be sure to underline the April Fool's Day title in red ink. Because orders underlined in blue or black ink will not be filled. The, the checks will be cashed either way, but the, the orders will not be filled. I, I also have a sort of disclaimer that the boys down in legal wanted you to insert at the end. If you could edit that in, I'd appreciate it. Sure. The preceding program was a fictitious satire and does not bear any resemblance to reality in any way. It is the April Fool's Day presentation of Alpha Control and is intended for humorous consumption only. It is not based on history or fact, and any similarities between real individuals, whether living or dead, was solely intended as a joke. Thank you for listening, and have a nice laugh. That was a blast talking to Dr. Jacob Shapiro, and we certainly thank him for sharing his stories and recollections, all from his exciting new book. Well, in the meantime, join us again next time for another episode of Alpha Control where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved, original, Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time. Same channel.